Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. On today's episode, we have the privilege of speaking with Mark Alera, the CEO of the Consumer Division at BT Group. It was great to get an insight into how you manage tens of thousands of people in an organization that has existed for a very long time. It's a very different challenge to being the founder of a startup. It was also interesting to hear Mark talk about starting his career in the fledgling video games industry. Mark's wealth of experience offers views into the challenges of running a massive organization like BT, the ethical and safeguarding considerations around artificial intelligence, along with the future of sports and the way that new generations of fans are consuming sports content. Mark, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thanks very much. Great to be here. So tell us, what is your job? Well, I'm the CEO of the consumer division of BT Group, uh, which means I run the e-mobile network, uh, which is obviously very well known for for mobile. Yep. Um, BT, which is better known for broadband. Most people who've got a broadband connection will know us. Um, we've got a TV business. Um, we've got a sports business that I that I run as mm. well, which is a joint venture that we've created with um, Warner Brothers and, and, and Discovery. Uh, we've got 25 million subscribers up and down the UK. So we're the largest consumer business in the country and the largest subscription business in the country. So it's a, it's a, it's a big old team. We've, we've got around 20,000 people in the, yeah. in the consumer team all over the country in stores, contact centers, head office roles everywhere. And we, we, our customers spend about 10 billion pounds a year with us. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a, Big part of the the group, yeah. And how has BT sort of changed over the years? Because I mean, it's a British institution, right? I mean, it, you know, once upon a time, literally had sort of you know a British in the in the name and so forth. How has it changed in that time? I think it's I think it's changed a huge amount. I mean, if you ask a lot of people twenty years ago, you ask them about BT, most people would have said phone boxes and yeah, landlines and you know, possibly a broadband connection. I I think now there's such variety in the in the portfolio of the companies that there's the e mobile business which is an enormous uh, company that 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 uh, was brought in and uh, brought into and now part of bt group um we've got a sports business a tv business media business um our infrastructure division in open reach is is rolling out the digital infrastructure for the next probably 50 to 100 years for the uk full fiber optic broadband going to everyone's homes and and I think as a as a as a company, it 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 is shifting a lot from a engineering data, very analytical led culture to to putting customers much more at the heart of of what it does, which is which is a big shift for an organisation as big as BT. I mean, BT's got over a hundred thousand people. It can be an oil tanker at times, trying to change direction or or change culture. But you know, I can, I can feel a lot of pace and energy moving in the company now. Um. When we first spoke, you'd just come back from Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, which is a huge event, which I'd love to hear your thoughts on more broadly. And the big theme there this year was AI. And obviously, it's been one of these developments with ChatGPT, uh, ChatGPT4 coming out this week when we're mm. recording. What impact do you think that that's going to have on the future of, of jobs and also on the on the future of networks, right? Because people are putting a huge amount of data through these um, platforms. How's that going to fare? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the, it was a big theme at this Congress, which for, for those that um, maybe maybe don't know what it is, this is, this is the sort of annual um, coming together of networks, software platforms, 
chip manufacturers, networks, uh, device manufacturers. It's it's um, it's an enormous conference where over a hundred thousand people descend into Barcelona and talk tech and and talk developments in our industry. And last year, interestingly, all the talk was about the metaverse. That was the only thing you could you could talk about, and the only thing everyone was talking about. Yeah. Uh, and this year, I would say there was no talk of the metaverse, <laughs> but uh, lots of people talking about AI. And I, I, I but I do think it, it feels like it's much more than just a buzzword and, and a thing of the moment. You know, when I look at across the the value chain of our industry, from the chip manufacturers, the semiconductor people, the equipment manufacturers that that create the equipment that powers our networks, device manufacturers software players everybody's talking about how ai is going to be incorporated into their products and services and and you're absolutely right what what this means is there's going to be a massive incremental demand on processing power uh effectively the en- the engine that powers the the technology when you're talking billions of instances of search terms and and pieces of code that need to be generated and turned into answers for mm. for people um, that means a massive demand on processing power, and and that ca- cannot all be handled by more data centers. That needs to be put into networks and and semiconductors and uh, hardware and software. And I, I think no one's really yet thought through how, because it's going to place massive demands on um, what we call edge networks, where you where you push the network closer to the customer. Massive demands on processing power and data centers, and I think everybody's thinking that through at the moment. It's it, it's I think the technology is exciting and terrifying at the same time. Yeah, personally, what excites you about it? I think what excites me about it is how the the efficiency that it could create in in any business and how that could help customers. So deploying that technology, and we already deploy some of that technology already to spot problems in our networks. You know, particularly when the teams are sleeping overnight, the machines are yeah. working and picking up problems and and adjusting them and making changes without, without human beings necessarily needing to be involved or um, answering questions for, for consumers and, and helping them get to the answers quickly and easily. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful technology, I think, deployed in the right way. I think the thing that terrifies me about it, and I, I don't think um, anyone's really delving into the consequences of what happens if somebody types into one of these engines a question like, "How do I commit suicide?" Mm. Is 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 underage sex a good thing, or how do I do this, or how do I do that? What answers are you going to get, and where do those answers come from, and how do you know the the provenance, the quality of the sourcing mm. of of the answers you're getting, and who's responsible for all of that, and how is that going to be monitored and regulated? And you know, we've already got big problems, as we as, as we all know, on our social media platforms. And and this is that on steroids. Yeah. And and I really don't, so I think there's a huge amount of excitement and and as there always is in new technology. But I think really thinking through how how it should be responsibly used is is the job that many people need to really start upping the ante on. And and how do you think the best way to go about that would be? Because it's right you raised some you know terrifying examples there of you know what could happen and what it could be used for. How do regulators go about bringing? You know, safeguards in around this issue. Well, generally, in consultation with industry, but I, I, I think the challenge with regulation it tends to come into force much later than the technology's been deployed. Yeah, and so it's dealing with a lot of retrospective 
issues that have built for some time. And of course, because of the pace of technology now, something's launched and you're three, four, five years into it. There's an online harms bill, for example, mm-hmm. that's that's recently got a, a, a lot of focus, but, but that's a, a significant number of years after social media platforms and uh, all kinds of other online platforms are out there with billions of uh, interactions on them and, and, and lots of issues being being realized. So, you know, I've got a lot of sympathy for regulators because it's a very complex issue and, and you need to get all of the facts and listen to all parties that are, that are part of the system. But regulators alone can't solve it. And I, I think there is a huge responsibility on the part of companies to mm. solve these issues um, and, and have that a culture that says the safety and, and the quality of the information we're providing needs to be the very best it can be. One of the things that you've raised is BT becoming a lot more uh, consumer focused. And it does feel like one of the sort of general trends is that all citizens now have a voice on you know, issues like that, that we've just discussed. How does BT kind of become more customer focused, as you were saying earlier? Because like you say, you've got a huge um, amount of them. Yeah, you know, that's more than any other business in the UK. You know, how do you remain customer focused at that scale? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it it comes from the top. I think myself, my leadership team, you, you have to have a belief that serving people well, serving your customers well, will be good for business. And our market is incredibly competitive. There are so many choices that customers have got. Whilst we're a very large player, um, every day we, ha- we have to the fight for the right to keep our customers or, or attract new customers. So we we... We also recognize that I think word travels, good words and bad words travel faster than ever to more and more people about how well companies treat you. Yeah. And, and so you, you can't build a brand or shape a brand or deliver a successful brand through advertising anymore. It's through experience and doing what you say you're going to do. So I, I think it comes from a core belief from myself and my leadership team that customers are important, that doing everything we can to serve them is, is, is really key. Not accepting average levels of quality of service has been a big thing for us. You know, it, it's we haven't historically had the best brand and reputation for service. If you go back probably ten years, I'd say um, where we are now is is, in, is a much better place. But there's still a lot of improvements we need to make. We've got l- the lowest complaints in the industry, the customer satisfaction levels that are very high, and and they certainly weren't there a few years ago. But it's it's not a job you can ever say is done. Yeah, but how how did you do that? Because you've been chief exec five years now, so yep. a big portion yep. of that sort of turnaround of it. How how do you go about doing that? I mean, I take it comes from from the top, but yeah, I think it's very interesting for listeners of this podcast. Yeah, we tend to have sort of a lot of entrepreneurs, sort of who yep. can be nimble and very reactive to that. Can probably yep. almost you know at the beginning they will know all their customers by name. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit more of a yeah, challenge yeah. for you. It's yeah, sort no, of right. twenty five million. Like how. How do you sort of go about kind of bringing in that change? I, I think you've got to be really systematic about it. I mean, quite often we get asked, uh, or I get asked, what's the one or two things you've done? And, and the, the reality is it's thousands of little things all, all adding up. Mm. It, it's getting the data, knowing and understanding um, which products and services and channels and experiences or journeys that, that aren't working, having the data to do that. And then having a systematic process that addresses all of those issues one by one and, and knowing that you can't fix it all overnight, making sure you've got investment to address those issues, making sure they're a, a priority. Uh, I think creating a culture where 
it's quite often in a in a business like ours that's very big and and very functional i suppose you you have a service department or a sales department or a marketing department it's making customer service feel like it's everyone's job not just the customer service team's job and 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 i think that's something we've really done a done a good job on across the team is jointly owning customer experience and if you're building a product or running a product you feel as accountable for it as the service team or anyone else i think it's really interesting because i think the, the, the sort of little decisions are really quite important and you're taking 10 dozens of them a day and actually yeah there's often a tendency to be like well we've got to get the big calls right and so on and of course that's true but actually you're right that there's particularly in something like a customer journey there's there's loads of sort of different touch points as they say on that and it can be uh you know it can be a real challenge to get them right one of the big changes has been the sort of um evolution of bt going kind of into sport much more and you know a little tip like why and how that's happened and and kind of what reflections you have on it because in the space of your career you know sport has gone from being you know almost a part-time uh you know, occupation for a few people to now being full time across the board in mm. lots of professions, and also you know you look at the kind of production values at BT Sport and those things. There's a huge amount of people involved in pulling these events together now. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's a fascinating business. It's a very different business to any anyone we run, and and it's a very challenging business because because you you have these rights whether it's the champions league and the all of european football that we that we have exclusively or or premier league but they can all be taken away from you in mm. the next auction so you are living every two or three years constantly thinking about and worrying about what if what if what if what if we gain that what if we lost that what does that what does that mean so it's an incredibly volatile business compared to when we're building out mobile networks, whether it's 4G or 5G or fiber, the, the, those technologies and, and pipes in the ground or masts are going to be around for, for decades. decades right? yeah, yeah. So it's a very different way of thinking about it. And, and this is why we, we did create a joint venture with Warner Brothers and Discovery, because we, we felt if you look at the scale and rise of the streaming platforms, whether it's Amazon, as an example, could Netflix come into sport one day? Could Twitter come into sport one day in a, in a big way? Could Apple, could Google, could Meta? Quite possibly, I, I think, um, as well as Sky and all of the other um, players that are out there. So it's a very, very competitive business going through huge change. And increasingly now, the, the, the days, as, we, as we, anyone who's a sports fan will know this, the days of just tuning in at two o'clock or four o'clock on a on a Sunday afternoon and sitting in front of one game for an hour and a half are gone. Yeah. And we see millions of customers double triple screening, particularly on a Champions League night, and there's big games on. There's people on iPads watching one, two, three games at a time, switching between them whilst they've got the TV on. So keeping up with those digital trends, creating digital experiences that really work for customers, knowing and understanding and 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 playing to the the audience that does love tuning in for a, for a live game as well what's the future of how people engage with sport like you say it's changed a lot in the last 10 years people watching two three mm. screens a night in the champions league etc what do you think the next sort of 10 to 15 years will bring on that yeah i think it's a, it, it's a great question and i i think it 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 depends on the audience as well because if i think about how young people consume anything non-sport well, anything, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and sports part of that, and I, I, I think if if you are a football club or cricket club, or you, you're dealing with an audience now that has significantly less 
attention span tolerance to invest a huge amount of time in in watching anything or participating in anything unless it's a really good experience and and so changes in the way the game need to think about the audience i i think are coming i mean if you look at football for example uh how you think about the the time that the ball's in play and what what you know how do you deal with all of this time wasting issues and perhaps shorten the game and all those kind of things are really interesting questions and the way cricket's under pressure because no one no one's got the patience to watch five day tests anymore yeah. under the age of 30 and and so on and so forth so i so i think there's changes coming probably in the way sport thinks about the the game and the rules and uh, to appeal to those audience i think there's potentially fundamental changes coming to the way rights holders clubs in particular think about the opportunities to engage with those audiences and there's so many opportunities now because of the fact there's a smartphone or a, or a tablet in everyone's pocket or, or handbag or rucksack the way in which you can extend your reach now without needing to be in the stadium with your fan base and really thinking about fans as subscribers and customers rather than just people that turn up to a stadium once in a while I think give give so many opportunities to create new experiences and new content and and that creates a really interesting dynamic when you think of streaming platforms and content distributors like ourselves and how we think about the content and and you know what's available from us versus what's available directly from the club so the, there's so many things I think about to change along with faster networks that can do more things in more places and mixed reality and can you now, I mean, uh, it's a couple of clubs already experimenting with this where you can buy a seat in a virtual mm. stadium and have the same view as if you were in the stadium. And do you, what price do you price that ticket at? And, and can, you, can you buy a limited number of seats in a virtual 60,000 stadium? So Which clubs are experimenting with that? I think uh, Manchester City, I know, are experimenting as, as one of the clubs, as, as an example. So although it's, it can be a bit of a hype word, but the, the metaverse, the mixed reality, the ability mm. to... Put yourself actually as if you were there in a digital environment with with those views, or would you pay two thousand pounds to to sit next to Pep Guardiola and hear what he's saying and see what he's seeing from his eyes? All of those opportunities are coming. Yeah, and so I think that's incredibly exciting for sports fans. Yeah, what what other changes could happen? I mean, you talk about some exciting things because like, cricket is one that has innovated a huge amount, right? In the in the last sort of fifteen to twenty years, and so mm -hmm. on. Footballers stayed pretty much relatively the same, right? It's still the same format, same number of players. Do you see any changes there that could be interesting? Well, I think there's a, there's increasing focus and a, an increasing movement now around the, t the time the ball's in play and the level of inconsistency that there is between games and referees. And um, you know, if you look at, I, I think rugby's a good, a good example. You know, what, why, why can't you hear what the referee's saying? Why can't you hear what the VAR team are saying, what's there to hide? And, and because mm. you can't hear it, it feels like there's no accountability. And because it feels like there's no accountability, there's no trust. And when there's no trust, this is what really upsets fans. So I, I, think, I, I think there's... And, and then why is it when it says a minimum of three minutes are going to be played of added time and the, and the whistle blows at two minutes 30? Yeah. And everyone's got a clock. And why isn't, why isn't the clock visible to everyone? Yeah. This, so the the transparency that or the lack of transparency there is on those kind of things, I think people just won't tolerate anymore as as an experience. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot more transparency 
a lot more accountability and a lot more focus on consistency so the game gets fairer. That's really interesting. When it comes to joint ventures that you talk about um, there, how does one go about sort of structuring something like that and, and who sort of approaches who and yeah, how do these sort of kind of mega deals take place? Yeah, I mean, they, 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 they all they sound very glamorous that when they get done, don't they? These yeah, massive yeah. multi multi billion pound deals, and then the reality is, it normally comes down to two people who have a shared vision of where they want to get to and trust each other and feel like they can get a a win win for their organisation and the other organisation ultimately. So on this one, for example, we 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 have quite often you have advisors. Um, uh, they, you know, there can be banks or advisory banks that that will go and talk on your behalf to a number of interested companies, and and in this case, there were a dozen or so big. You think of big media companies that may want to create a joint venture in in sport, um, and then you have some conversations. You present the business um, and and help them understand it, and then after a while, you end up with a small number of players and and then some much more detailed conversations, and then you end up figuring out whether you can actually make this work from a business point of view as well as a cultural fit. And and the bit that's often underestimated, I think, is is the importance of people in that. Mm. Uh, ultimately, if you're in a, a, something like a joint venture where you are effectively um, sharing your revenues, sharing your costs, sharing your teams and sharing your business plan together, it's incredibly important that you can look across the table to the other team and feel like these are people I can work with for a number of years. So that, that's been a really important thing for, for me and, and, and the team in doing this one. What skills are required in that? Because I can imagine sort of, you know, a 16-year-old Jimmy McLaughlin listening to this and thinking, gosh, that sounds like a cool room to be in from a kind of mm. consumer, uh, from like a, a career point of view rather. Um, what skills are required in that sort of cultural mm. fit that you talk about yeah. there? I think a lot, a lot of empathy, the ability to really listen to to what someone's saying, because ultimately, if you're trying to get a deal done or any transaction or a sell something or buy something, ultimately, the, the 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 power and skill of listening to what someone's really saying is important to them. Yeah, is is one of the most important things you can do, and in the end. Uh, you know, I think quite often you you get you can you can get these incorrect perceptions of what good deals look like, and everyone's sort of high fiving and clapping and saying, yeah, "Yeah, we won." And but actually, it, it it's got to work for both both sides. It always does. Yeah. Because if you if you do a deal that you feel great about, but the other side feels terrible about, in the end, it comes back to bite you. Yeah. It always does. So that that point of I think empathy, listening. Uh, and then thinking about how to address what the other side wants whilst balancing what you want uh, is, a, is a really important skill. Yeah. Well, it's including the name, isn't it? Joint venture, right? It's got to, got to work yeah. for, for both sides. There are lots of different campaigns that you've worked on as part of it, the sort of evolution of sport, et cetera, Hope United kind of being one. What is the role of a company like BT when it comes to campaigns like that? Yeah, so Hope United was, was a really important platform for us to make a, make a really important stance on what we felt were a number of really important issues uh, in society and in, and in sport and using the power of sport and, and the power of 
um, some of the voices that we had access to, um, to to speak about racism and and sexism uh, and recently homophobia in in sport. Um, so we created a Hope United platform, a group of like minded, um, talented individuals who, who could talk about it. And, and and I think companies now and leaders now, I think are under so much more pressure from consumers and colleagues and employees to have a point of view on what's going on in society to take action um to speak about it to take a stance way more so than i can ever think about in my career it wasn't it wasn't something that leaders or businesses really got that involved in but now it's i think it's a fundamental part of what people are expecting from you and and i, I think with an organization of our scale and size and impact um we feel and have, I think, a, a bigger level of responsibility than most organisations to be a really powerful voice on, on on some of these really important issues. And as a CEO, how do you you you're responsible P and L shareholders, consumers, employees? Yeah, those additional sort of areas where you're right. You know, the demands are being made on businesses. We talked about consumers being a lot more kind of vocal on some of these issues. How do you go about you know, working through the sound of what's important and what's what's mm. not? I mean, I think that's that's one of the hardest things about my job, I think, and, and any, anyone's job like mine that, that's got what I would call a, a multi-stakeholder group that's incredibly complex, and you, you've listed them all out. We've got shareholders, customers, regulators, consumers, colleagues, um, wider society, um, a responsibility in the communities we're in, even beyond the employees we have and the customers we have in those areas, I think, because we, we feel like a very responsible part of the UK um, society and, and uh, economy. And and so I quite often have this wheel written out when I'm making big mm. decisions. You know, what is the impact of this on shareholders, colleagues, customers, any regulatory impacts, society, community? And 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 you just got to work it through. And and the hard thing, of course, is you'll never be able to please make everyone. a decision and please everybody. <laughs> you've you've got to make these balanced choices, balanced decisions. Ultimately, and and sometimes some of those stakeholder groups are, are feel like you could have done a better job for them. But over the course of one year, three years, and five years, that's that's what you've got to be looking to to achieve. Is 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 a great a great business, I think, has a, has a really balanced outcome across all of those dimensions. And ultimately, everyone understands that you're looking out for them and you can't do something that pleases them all the time. But if your customers are feeling good and your shareholders are feeling good and your colleagues are feeling good and better every year about what you're doing, then you, you feel like you're making progress and momentum. Yeah. What made you want to be a chief exec? I'm not, I'm not sure I ever, particularly in the early stages of my career, ever said you know, I, I, I must, or I, I want to be, I mean, I always, I think I always had the ambition to lead a company. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure where that came from. It, it was certainly in the early stages of my career. I always felt I had the ambition to lead a company, lead a brand, do things the way I wanted to do them. I don't know where it came from. I, I, I certainly didn't specifically say I want to be the chief executive of mm. a massive division in a telecoms company. But the ambition to lead has, has always been there, I think, through the very early phases of my career. 
And technology's always been there, right? Because you uh, you sort of started off in in Sega, right? What what was that like? Yeah, I mean, I, I I've been incredibly lucky just to be part of incredible industries. You know, the video gaming industry when I was in it um, in early stages, I was involved with the n- various Nintendo launches. Then went to Sega at an incredible time where we launched an online games console, which was the first time ever. Uh, an, an online games console that w- was launched and and unfortunately it launched without a broadband network to power the online games console so it was a fundamental <laughs> flaw we had we had power but no broadband network and and so i suppose it's it's sort of in, interesting that i've ended up you know at, at the <laughs> uk's the problem, largest yeah. infrastructure provider to sort of maybe try and fix these things but it was a very pioneering time in video games and uh, an amazing time and and Microsoft were just coming in with the Xbox and PlayStation were, were, were building. So, uh, and obviously Nintendo were, were pretty strong, but it was, a, it was a, a time where games still came in boxes and cassettes and cartridges and things. Yeah. And, and, uh, obviously that, that industry has changed beyond all recognition. But I, I think some of the most, uh, enjoyable work experiences for me were just being involved in a, in a, in a launch like that. It's, it's very, it's very rare you get the chance to launch a brand or a product that's as big and as meaningful has that and touches as many consumers and, and, and gets you and your customers as excited as, as things like that. And I've, I've just been lucky. I managed to have two or three of those experiences in my career. And many people never get to do that. They yeah. never get to launch a brand. You would, most people just inherit a brand. You go and work for Coca-Cola. You're not really going to change the Coca-Cola brand or Sainsbury's or, you know, these are brands that have been in the market forever. And I've been lucky enough to launch big new products or brands from, from scratch in my career. And that they've been the most enjoyable experiences that i've been part of and what what were you thinking when you headed into those industries at, at that age was it just you know sort of video games is is cool I, i'd quite like to work in that i'll, I'll get any job that I, I can or was it more thought through and structured than that it certainly wasn't very thought through and structured um i mean i my one of my early experiences was working for a company called olivetti in italy and they were uh, an incredible organization largely uh, non-existent now but they were they were pioneers in computers and computing had their they they started with typewriter olivetti founder founded the typewriter for example and my bosses there basically said to me you've got to learn about distribution and and sales because we're great at design we're great at um, innovation but we we just can't sell which when i think about it because they were the marketing um, organization quite often that's that's the (laughs) accusation that marketing throw at sales and then sales um will often throw back well our marketing's not good enough and customers don't understand what we're selling but you know that that got me into sales and distribution a, a, a huge entertainment distributor at the time that was that was selling music and video games and books and, and and videos when all of these things came in physical form all over the world and it was just a a brilliant time to be in those industries. Uh, the music industry was flying. The games industry was growing mm. at an exponential rate. Uh, film and video w- w- was incredible. And, and when I look at those industries now and the level of change that they've been through, it's absolutely amazing. And nobody, when I was working in those industries at that time, was ever talking about or thinking about the level of disruption that technology yeah. was going to bring to them. What is your favorite video game? Uh, Goldeneye on the Nintendo 64. Classic. Can can never be beaten. All I know, all these online games are very exciting, but Goldeneye on the N sixty four. Yeah, yeah, they really did crack that. Isn't it? Like it's not very. I mean, it's interesting now. It's sort of seeing The Last of Us sort of go to kind of television screen, but that is one of the few adaptions of a film into a game that that 
yes. did really well, right? Yeah, I agree. Many of them don't. Um, yeah. And I, n- I never understand why the, the, the publishers don't sort of translate the great films into, into the games. But um, you're right, GoldenEye is an absolute classic, yeah. What does the future of Jobs look like? I mean, like we've been talking about, you were right there at the sort of vanguard of some of these very exciting industries in, in the 90s. When you look at the future of work and the future of jobs, what do you see it for the next 20 or 30 years being the kind of key, key skills that are required? Well, I think one, one of the most important things, I'm not sure necessarily it's a skill, but just, just being flexible, mm. um, being adaptable, being open to change and open to learn. Because like anything, I think the, the pace of change just keeps picking up and up and up and and we genuinely none of us i mean there may be one or two very bright or lucky people can predict what the next five ten years is going to look like but what we what we do know is that technology and networks and the way customers consume content and and technology and experiences and new pieces of hardware that come from out of nowhere like the iphone did back in 2007 will fundamentally change the way we live work entertain ourselves yeah and i can't predict and as i said most people won't be able to predict that but what we can predict is loads of change and so i think when you're thinking about coming into work or even if you're in work building your career at the moment just getting your head around the fact that there's going to be loads of change coming and that's okay because everyone else is also going going to go through that and there's lots of people who say they love change but most people really don't like change and you you've got to you've got to embrace that and lean into that and learning new skills is a really really important thing and um, there's there's lots of studies going around around what what colleagues what employees want now and and learning new skills is is as important as pensions and healthcare for a lot of people now Mm. because they recognize the the need for them to adapt and doesn't matter what stage of your career you're at you you are always learning and you need to learn because everything around you is changing and the consumer's changing so you can't just keep working the way you've always worked with the same tools, same technology. Everything's changing. As one of the biggest employers in the UK, you touched on something really interesting there about what people want. And that skill development is really interesting to hear that. Post-pandemic and kind of working in offices, etc., where do you see the future of that sort of heading? Yeah, we're sort of in the, to use the um, term, yeah, we're in a new normal now where you know, yeah. flexibility is happening. You know, do you think people should be back in the office more or where do you think that's going to, to end up? Mm. I think everyone's trying to figure this out and there's, there's no right or wrong answer here. I mean, I, I, think it's, I think it's wonderful the flexibility or certainly increased flexibility that there is now for people. And I think back to when I was a young, a young parent trying to, trying to bring up you know, my, my three young children and all of the demands between myself and my wife and the childcare and, and trying to be in three different places at once whilst having to be in the office nine to five or eight to late, Monday to Friday. Yeah. Uh, and the number of sports days and parents' evenings and shows and things I, I missed. You know, I, I, think, I think it's wonderful now that there is that flexibility for people who work in my team and other companies to be able to juggle more effectively home life and work life and more and more of us are caring for parents or, or and children at the same time so there's huge pressures i think on people and, and we know that childcare is difficult to get access to and it's more and more expensive so i think the flexibility is brilliant 
and we really embrace that and it's a it's a huge part of what we enable as well so and um, we're big we're big enthusiasts about it however i also i also recognize and i can see it in in how teams perform that being in the office and or, and it's not necessarily about i think the office is a distraction from people being together mm. so there's too much of a dialogue i think about the office versus home and it's not it's about teams being together build more trust learn better together learn off each other um help and support each other brilliantly build great relationships and particularly if you're in your 20s and 30s i think where you're trying to accelerate your career growth if i think of what were the biggest influences on me it was spending time with watching my boss or bosses or people i really respected having mentors people bumping into me in the corridor sometimes it can just happen like that have you heard there's a new job going in da 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 department yeah have you heard so and so's leaving or have you have you heard so and so's upset or all of those things you 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 just don't get if if you're um out of the office all of the time and and i so i do worry about i feel i have a responsibility to pass on as much of the learnings i have by being present people being able to see hear understand get a feel for what i'm thinking about and give give a nudge of advice to someone if i if i can i think people are really missing out if they if they're not present and 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 so i th- and, and and we can see in in the in the teams that are easier to measure and this is a hard hard one because knowledge workers it's very hard to measure output it's very mm-hmm. easy to measure a customer service advisor or a retail advisor or sales but you can certainly see on the more measurable roles people are more productive when they're together yeah we can see that 10 to 15% more productive it it's much harder measuring a a, a more a, a sort of more of a corporate role where Mm. You're, me- you're measuring decisions and outcomes that can take years to, for, for you to assess. But I'm sure that's also true. Creative meeting, that we have better ideas when we're together. It's easier to communicate to different people when you're together. I, I think it's, the, it, it's a balance, really, yeah. is, is the key. And, and it's not a binary thing. Do you think these sort of the corporate HQ, I mean, you know, BT, you know, sort of adorns the London skyline, but do you think we'll almost see more satellite? Office, offices then, or not even offices, right, to f- fall into your language, but satellite spaces where people might get together. Yeah, I think so. And, and I, I think I mean, certainly what we're trying to do is we, we, we have offices and, and service centres all over the country. Yeah, cool. And I, I think it's really important for companies like ours to have a distributed workforce, to not rely on central London as the only place where you can hire digital talent or data scientists. Because it's incredibly co- competitive as a, as a market and relatively disloyal in the sense that people move around and companies much more often in, in an environment like like London or Manchester, for example, big cities. So we're we're trying to reskill a lot of our service teams uh, who are all over the country um, into new roles and keep them in the service centres, whether it be in Plymouth or Dundee or. Uh, the northeast, um, all over the country, um, Wales, Cardiff, Merthyr. So those people can have great careers; they can reinvent themselves. But we also have great talent all over the UK. And when we think about serving 25 million customers, we are a, we're the biggest customer business in the country. We need people who understand all parts of the country. And I think a London-centric mm. corporate office is not the only answer to that. What is the talks about their bit sort of the moments in corridors and so on what were the moments that you 
caught the brakes in your career. And how would you advise somebody in the modern world trying to do that? Yeah, I mean, the the the, the biggest breaks came to me from people, obviously. But so having a the broadest network you possibly can, building great relationships. When I think back to the break, the break I had at Sega, for example, mm. this was the the person who ran Sega. I I was effectively a uh, I used to buy their products to then distribute them on. Um, and we built a really great relationship. That person then said, would you like to come and work for Sega? Building great relationships, listening to people in terms of what they want, having empathy with them, um, building that real sense of trust means you'll, you'll be seen as someone that people want in their team. Yeah. Um, so I think they've, they've come from having built great relationships, certainly. And then I think the, the, the influence that bosses have, if I think over my career, there's probably three or four bosses, and I haven't had loads of bosses actually. Um, there's been three or four that have just been fundamentally critical, I think, in giving me the opportunities, trusting in me, giving me the increased responsibility. And, and they're so, they're, <laughs> they're, I always say to people, interview your next boss as much as they're interviewing you, because they are probably in your 20s and 30s like the most important determinant for your future career your future platform the opportunities you're going to get or not get um your sense of well-being um they're just they're, they're just so fundamentally important and i i've just been lucky and attracted to brilliant people that have given me those opportunities but also i also took risks to go to certain situations where at the time the job on paper you wouldn't necessarily take it um so what i mean by that is i moved to sega when there were about three people in the building because video games consoles are, are, are such a peak and a trough business mm. and they just they were just basically on the end of the mega drive which you, you probably remember and then and then gearing up but there was going to be a, a, a a quiet period for a couple of years where my my team was me and the job was really sell off a few old mega drive cartridges but get ready for this next console which was going to be a career defining moment for me and a life defining moment i think in terms of the enjoyment and experience that i that i got from it but on paper that job wouldn't look very interesting no team yeah no status you know if you if you're just thinking about that in terms of ego uh not very not very attractive but seeing the opportunity of being at the start of launching the next Sega video console was just something too good to miss. Um, I, did the, I did the same when I moved to uh, Hutchison, which became three. Uh, I think I was the 15th employee sitting in an office um, and we had a piece of paper that said we, we've got a 3G license and we're going to launch a new mobile phone network. There were no masts. There was no IT, there was no technology, there was nothing, there was just a bunch of people talking about how we're going to do it. But, but being at the start of la launching a brand new mobile operator in, in the UK at the time when mobile was still exploding, fantastic opportunity. So trying to assess opportunity. I th yeah, I think the look, look beyond the how many people work for me and what's the salary and what's the grade and all this kind of stuff that people get obsessed about. E even uh, internally, you quite often get this in companies, you know, obsessing about grade or ch title rather than what's the job. Yeah. What, what will happen with that job and which, which department or 
situation you're moving into and in years one, two, and three, what are you going to experience? And picking that, you know, it's, it, it, it's a bit like, you know, a lot of people might not have moved to Tesla from Ford for that very reason a number of years ago and now probably living to regret that. So it's, you, you can't pick them right all the time. Yeah. And some of them are easier to pick. But I think take, taking those risks and being in early at, at periods of high growth or high change and high transformation are, you'll have the most fun, you'll learn the most about yourself and others, you'll be tested more than anywhere else. And ultimately, I think for me, have, have been defining foundation moments in, in, in my career, certainly. A few quick fires. Yep. Favourite football team? Uh, it's, I say this with a heavy heart at the moment, Liverpool. Oh, yeah. We're talking the day after they've been knocked out of the Champions League. Yes. Favourite sporting moment? I'm going to ask you this too. Favourite sporting moment that you would like to have witnessed from history? And then favourite one of recent years? Wow. I think, I think watching Maradona in his prime mm-hmm. when, they were, when they won the World Cup. I yep. to have been there. I watched it on the telly, but actually being there in person would be pretty amazing. Having watched this documentary and the yeah, whole yeah. story around that. What was the other one? The, the one favorite one if from I recent relive, years. Yeah, well, for me, I mean, as, as, a, as non-Liverpool fans would be groaning, but the Istanbul final, yes, three nil down, and thinking it was all over at half time, and planning the exit to the airport early, and all that kind of stuff, and then deciding to stay, and probably the best decision I've ever made in a, in a, <laughs> yeah, in yeah, a football stadium ever. I think I'd say uh, one of my favorite things of when I really fell in love with audio. I've said this a few times on the podcast, but is when the Liverpool game, we just moved house, we were unpacking everything, so I basically just got it on the radio, and it was uh, the game where Liverpool pulled it back in the second leg, and just listening to the cop at full time was... Oh, the Barcelona game? Yeah, was yeah. incredible. That was yeah, I was, I was at that game. But uh, I think Istanbul trumps it because it was a final. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but, was... but that was uh, an unbelievable <laughs> evening as well, the Barcelona, yeah. If you get, what would be your dream job if non-corporate job? Yeah, it's a really difficult one to answer. Um, I, I mean, I think, I, I, I mean, I think one day I, I would, I would like to run a charity. I think that has a meaningful impact for lots of people less fortunate than me. Interesting. And what was your first experience of business entrepreneurship? Were you one of these people that was setting up a tuck shop in school? <laughs> well, we put on, we put on. Um, discos and parties and and uh, hired out venues and sold tickets and things like that um mm-hmm. we never made any money but it was great fun uh, still learned a lot doing it though right? still learned a lot doing it absolutely about costs and revenue and uh who how many friends you let in with a free pass versus those that <laughs> yeah, yeah. should have paid <laughs> so, yeah, yeah yeah mark thanks so much for coming on jimmy's jobs of the future thanks very much it's heavy great being here thanks for listening to jimmy's jobs of the future We've come a long way since our first episode when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok. And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below.